welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. We welcome you to the Essanon Family Group and hope that in this fellowship, you will find the help and friendship that we have and the privilege to enjoy. We would like you to feel and understand as perhaps few can. We too were lonely and frustrated. But here, we have found that there is no situation too difficult to be better. No unhappiness too great to do less. The ethnon family group consists of relatives and friends and sexaholics who realize that by banding together, they can better solve their cognitive problems. We urge you to try the health program. Without spiritual help, living with or having lived with a sexaholic is too much for most of us. We become nervous, irritable, unreasonable. Our thinking becomes confused and our perspective becomes distorted. Rarely have we seen a person who has not greatly benefited by working the Essanon program. The Essanon steps, or the 12 steps of Essanon, which we try to follow, are not easy. As at first, we may think that some of them are unnecessary, but if we are honest, open minded, and willing to apply the principles of the 12 steps in our lives, we find that the benefits can be limitless, including God's gift of serenity. Okay, good. Shelly, please. Seattle, Washington. Hello, everyone. I'm Shelly, grateful sex alcoholic from Washington State. Sexaholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop lusting and become sexually sober. There are no dues or fees for FA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. SA is not allied with any sect denomination, politics, organization, or institution does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sexually sober and help others to experience or achieve sexual sobriety. Thank you. Okay, so a couple other things I want to get ready for. If we go to our schedule, okay, everybody open up their schedule. I want to kind of look at uh, look at uh, tomorrow morning. So tomorrow morning at seven o'clock at seven thirty, we have Stephen who's going to be leading the meditations this weekend. Hey, he's right here. So if anybody wants to chat with him during the weekend or talk to him about meditating and how to achieve that, 
Uh, be sure to chat with him. He's going to be here at seven. They're going to be doing it in here at seven o'clock in the morning. Okay. And uh, so that's both Saturday and Sunday morning, morning meditation. So breakfast time is between seven and eight and eight o'clock. We're going to start kind of early tomorrow. Eight o'clock, we're going to have a speaker session. You guys are so lucky. This is going to be amazing. That's what we have three. Adult children of sexaholics. They're going to get 15 minute talks. And they are uh, Natalia, or she at? She here? She's not back yet. She's not back yet. She's from Poland. She's coming over here to talk Poland. We have Nathan from Colorado. He's going to be talking. And we have Marcus. Marcus here yet? He's not here yet. He's going to also talk. Uh, and a lot of uh, international conferences, they typically have as a team talks. We're doing adult children of sex talks, HTSA. So that's that's what we're trying to do. So it's going to be pretty exciting. Okay, and then after that, uh, we go into a face-to-face uh, -face, uh, breakout sessions in which uh, uh, they're going to be here. And there and, and behind us where the, the, the our areas that'll be the uh, that's how we're gonna break out and I'll get more into that tomorrow. But the most important thing I want to talk about is this right here. Yes, Angie's holding this up. The people on this row right here and this row right here, here's what I need you to do. Now this is gonna be a little work for everybody. We're not at a goal with people on Zoom. Last year we had around 140, is that right? Johnson, and, and, and we're not there right now. And, and I'd like for everybody to take a photo of it and send it to your home group, if you guys are part of home groups, and say, hey, this is going on right now. Jump on and, and be a part of it. So this one right here, if you want to, if you know how to, take a photo of it and send it off to your home groups and then pass it down to the road. Each one of these guys are the leaders. Take a photo and pass it down the road once you've done that. If you know how to do that, we sure appreciate it. The whole goal is to try to, you know, get at least 150 on Zoom. 150 people. Okay, so while they're doing that, over here in this little blue box, if you look at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're having one of our most favorite talks, which is Healthy Intimacy. And health and communication. So I'm challenging you all to come up with some of the toughest questions you want to ask the panel from. There's going to be three people here, three people here, and they'll be answering questions, which is Kevin Kay is going to be moderating. So I'm going to put this box over there so you can come up, pick up the question ballots, put your question on them, put your question on them, put them in the ballot, and they'll be over here on his table. So we need a good 20 to 30 questions. So at least everybody try to think of one good question. Okay? I think that's it. Anything else, sweetie? Okay, so next, without further ado, we'd like to have uh, the essay for this particular one is John M. And Mark, where's my guy? That wrote down with John. Is he here? He's over trying to get a hamburger for me. <laughs> okay. okay, well, how about this? 
Okay, I'm going to introduce John uh, uh, in, uh, before he speaks here. And uh, John, uh, John's actually a sponsor of mine. Um, he is an amazing person as far as service. How many of y'all uh, went to the Atlanta International Convention on Zoom a while back? Raise your hands. Okay, so he was a part of that. He was a, a main uh, talk with a lot of other great people there. Um, he's helped out with registration here. He also helps out with our intergroup. The intergroup is one that sponsors this conference. It's called the Out of the Darkness Intergroup sponsors this conference. He helps out there as well. Um, Service-wise, you know, he's had a great story, you know, as far as his journey. Um, and both in SA and SNR, you know, it's amazing. And, uh, you know, you guys are really lucky to have him as a speaker tonight. So how about a big round of applause for John? Hello, everybody. I am John M., a great recovering sexaholic and a great member of SMON. Hi, guys. Okay. Uh, before I get started on my talk, everybody stand up. Everybody stand up. If you have checked in with me at the registration table, <laughs> sit down. <laughs> Okay, that's the thing. If you haven't checked in, make sure you check in. Make sure you check in. Jessica's out there right now. You can go check in with her. Um, okay. Um, I am very ADD, and so preparing for a talk like this is a tremendous challenge for me. Um, I did the best I could, but my mom had a ball this week and broke her wrist and broke her hip. And uh, so my plans got kind of thrown in a blender, and I did the best I could. So you're going to get a partially prepared talk, and I'm going to do the best I can to deliver it. Um, I'm a sexaholic. For me, to be a sexaholic is to have a chronic disease for which there is no permanent cure. It's analogous to me to diabetes. Um, I'm going to try not to hit the podium uh, because I keep making noises. Um, I can regularly follow the prescriptions given to me by those who have wisdom, most of which was passed down to them. And thereby, I can avoid the deleterious effects of my disease. But I can never be free of my disease. When I stop following the wise prescriptions, the disease begins to hurt me again. How I acquired this disease is still somewhat unclear. Certainly, many of my innate characteristics combine to predispose me to this disease. Some parents used to tell their children, if you masturbate, you will go blind. 
My parents never told me this one, and I don't think the parents that did really believed it would happen. But in a very real sense, for me, there was a lot of truth in that statement. When I began to masturbate, I began developing a very real spiritual blindness. The SA problem states, many of us felt inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Our insides never matched what we saw on the outsides of others. Early on, we came to feel disconnected from parents, from peers, from ourselves. We tuned out with fantasy and masturbation. We plugged in by drinking in the pictures, the images, and pursuing the objects of our fantasies. We lusted and wanted to be lusted after. We became true addicts. Sex with self, promiscuity, adultery, dependency relationships. We got it through the eyes. We bought it. We sold it. We gave it away. We were admitted to the intrigue, the teens, the forbidden. The only way we knew to be free of it was to do it. Please connect with me and be whole. We cried with outstretched arms. Lusting after the big fix, we gave away our power to others. This produced guilt, self-hatred, remorse, emptiness, and pain. We inward, away from reality, away from love, lost inside ourselves. Or had it made true intimacy impossible, we could never know real union with another because we were addicted to the unreal. We went for the chemistry. Actually, it had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. Fantasy corrupted the real, love killed love. First, addicts that love cripples we took from others to fill up what was lacking in ourselves. Finding ourselves time and again that the next one would save us, we were really losing our lives. Find out where I am here. I quote the essay problem because it so perfectly describes my experience. Inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. Those thoughts and feelings permeated my childhood. And once I began masturbating and drinking in the pictures and the images that were soaked in fantasy, once I became addicted to the intrigue, the tease, and the forbidden, my maturation, my growth, slowed to a crawl. In my childhood, emotionally, socially, Spiritually, was greatly prolonged. I stayed a child for a long, long time. Without any healthy connections to nurture me, I languished. It's not that those healthy connections weren't available or theoretically possible. They were. 
It's that my misconnection, my addiction was so consuming once it became established and it became enrooted that I couldn't, or at least I wouldn't, face the scary prospect of exposing my true self to a person. Even if I had known or understood that was necessary in order to forge a true and healthy connection rooted in intimacy and love, I just wouldn't have been able to do it. Once it became a habit to medicate my pain by using addiction, the guilt, the self-hatred, the remorse, the emptiness, and the additional pain that using my addiction would result in. After the initial relief or escape or numbness that it, it afforded me, it combined to increase the inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. It made it worse. And though my deepest desire was to be truly understood and loved just as I was, my addiction thwarted the possibility of this ever occurring. At every turn, it, it thwarted it at every turn. And my few abortive attempts at honesty invariably resulted in misunderstanding and rejection. Okay, that's for that's for all that I had prepared. So at this point, I'm going to try to give you some of my story. Um, I um, this is going to be somewhat disjointed, and I'm sorry for that. But I'm ADD, like I said, and so. I'll do the best I can. Um, um, one of the main things that I want you guys to know is I, I've experienced a lot of pain. It was, yes, it was brought on by myself. And you know, it's my decisions. Um, my sex addiction started in my teens, and it's uh, it was because of my pain, like I mentioned, that it started, and it then it generated more pain, but. Trying to get a feel for where I'm supposed to be next on this. Um, take your time. Thank you. Yeah. Take your time. Um, you said take your time in case you guys didn't hear. So I'm going. And God is good. He's gonna He's gonna speak through me to somebody, whoever needs to hear. 
I've spent time in prison because of my addiction. Um, I look into a, a woman's house and I was in a crazy state of mind. To addicts, we get in crazy states of minds. And I just thought she would want to have sex with me based on, you know, posters that she had on her walls. Um, this was when I was 20 years old. It's been a long time ago. But um, I ended up, you know, going to prison for that. Um, and I ended up losing a marriage. Uh, my first marriage, I was married at the time. Um, we had been married for about a year. And she stuck with me through going into prison. But she said, if you ever do that again, I'm leaving you. If you ever do anything like that again, I'm leaving you. And uh, I, went in, I got into therapy and was trying to do all the right things that I thought I was supposed to do for everybody in my life. I wasn't doing it for me because I didn't understand doing it for me at that point. This was before I heard about SA. Um, and I uh, eventually acted out again and got caught and he divorced me. I don't like her one bit. Um, I, you know, it was more than she could handle. And at that time, she didn't understand anything. I didn't understand anything about addiction. Um, I didn't understand why I was doing these things. And um, I was just hoping to be different and telling myself that was the last time over and over again. Um, got married a second time after the divorce, after waiting a while. I had gotten started going to essay meetings um, after this after the divorce. Um, and I had convinced myself that everything was okay and that I was ready to start dating again. Years had, years had gone by, time had gone by. Um, so I started dating again. And I was very open with her about everything in my past. Um, and I tried to, uh, to make it a, a fresh start and do it, do it right. And I thought everything was going to be okay. But eventually, I stopped going to SA meetings. I stopped really working my program. I really never worked it that hard, as, to be honest. I didn't really work it that hard. I would go to meetings. There was not a lot of sobriety in the meetings I was going to. This was, this was 25 years ago. Um, and eventually, I started acting out in various ways um, and uh, trying to 
use my addiction to numb the pain that I was feeling in my life. And eventually, uh, my wife decided she had enough. And so I went through a second divorce. Um, lost jobs because of my addiction. Um, making inappropriate advances to people in the workplace. Um, all sorts of all sorts of pain for my family, my kids. I've got four kids, two from the first marriage, two from the second marriage. Caused um, all sorts of pain. About 12 years ago, 12 or 15 years ago, I started going to SA and started going to more and more meetings. And I got a sponsor and I really started focusing on the program. Started helping out in meetings, started doing everything I could. And as it says in the big book, um, I couldn't do it. God could change me. I could not change myself. I couldn't come up with a way to change myself. But just following the simple suggestions that sponsors gave me that I heard at meetings, started God started changing me. He started making a tremendous difference in my thinking. That was really the big thing that needed to change was the way I thought. I used to fantasize and I used to lust a lot. Um, and that has slowly gone away to the point that I just don't even, it never even happens anymore. Um, and I'm so thankful to God. I just, it's tremendous, tremendous change that he's done over the last 12 years. Um, at first, you know, it was slow, but um, I stuck with it and I started thinking about actually, what am I thinking about? What's going on in my brain? Started talking to people about it. This is one of these are the thoughts that I'm challenged with today. You know, I saw this person and this started going on. And I started thinking about the thoughts. So I kind of stepped back and started looking at my thoughts. And that was a big, a big thing that really made a big difference for me. Um, and I started opening up. And the fact that people could hear me in the meetings and on phone calls, hear what I was saying and accept me just where I was made a huge difference. I finally started getting real connections with people. I finally started having real relationships. Part of that in my life, everything had been a shame. I had been just trying to act like who I thought I was supposed to be. I couldn't accept who I was. Deep down, I thought nobody's going to like that person. So I never really shared who I really was with people. But when I started really working my essay program, and really started sharing who I really was, and people really started accepting me as I was, then God could change and could start growing. And my childhood finally, finally stopped. 
my childhood lasted into my 40s, you know, well into my 40s. But my childhood could finally stop because I started being a real person. I started interacting with people as me and not as some body that I wanted people to see or wanted them to think I was. I stopped hiding. I started really coming out as a person. And that's what really made the difference for me. Um, today, I've got 11 people that I sponsor. And God is doing all sorts of miracles in their lives. Well, my sponsors are here at this, this retreat. Um, I've got hundreds of friends in SA. Just, you know, it's like I never really had any friends in my life, but now I've got really close friends, people that really know me and love me just the way I am. Um, and it's just a whole new life. So, Anybody want to ask me a question? <laughs> some helpful tools you use today. What are some helpful tools that I use today? That's a great question. The biggest tool is talking to people in the program. That could be in meetings. That could be in phone calls. But people in the program get me. They understand me. I can connect with them in a real way. In a way that I don't always connect with people that are not in the program. I still sometimes put up that front when it's when people are not in the program. With people in the program, I'm much more real. And that's what I need. I need that real connection. I need to be real. So that's the most important tool is that connection with other people. Another very important tool is my connection with God. And that is, that I do that through meditation. I do that through prayer. I'm constantly praying to God, show me the next right thing to do. Um, I give I give my future to you, God. I'm not going to worry about it. I give my past to you, God. You, you can help heal all the people I hurt. I'm willing to do that next right thing for that to happen, but I can't change the past. So I give that to you. So I have prayers, I have meditations, um, readings that I do um, to keep me connected with my higher power. That's very, very important for me. Yes, sir. How would your having ADD impact how you work your steps? Okay, the question was, how, does, how did having ADD affect my working of the steps? That's a great question as well. Um, it makes it harder. Um, having AED keeps, uh, I'm all over the place, right? So I need God maybe more because of that. Um, and so it makes me more rely on God more, I think, even if I didn't have it. And that's the way I look at all of my defects. You want to call them defects. God may be the way I am. So I'm starting to accept that these things I called defects for so long are more features than they are defects. It's <laughs> a software debugging term. It's a, it's a feature, not a, it's not a bug. 
And um, so I'm starting to accept now that, you know, these things that are kind of weird about me, that kind of I'm always not liked, really, that's that I'm that way. Well, I'm starting to be okay with them. And I'm even starting to appreciate some of uh, I've started realizing that the, the main reason people like me is because I have faults. If I was perfect, it would be really hard for anybody to like me. It's really my faults that endear me to other people. It's the things that are that are wrong with me that make you say, wow, he's okay. If I was perfect, you know, it's <laughs> you wouldn't be able to. I don't know if that answered your question. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Uh, when somebody in the program calls you on the phone because they're in a tough spot, what do you say to them? Okay, the question was, when somebody calls you on the phone because they're in a tough spot, what do you say to them? Well, the first thing I do is listen to them. And then I listen to God. And I say, God, if you got something you're saying to me, as you want me to say to them. And then I listen to them more because the most important thing is for them to feel heard. Um, and then if I feel like God's telling me to say something to them, from my experience, I try to do that. You know, I, I've run across this before, and this is how, you know, I struggle with it, and I really feel you. And, you know, God was able to help me this way. Um, but I try not to give advice, but I probably do sometimes, you know. But uh, I've learned that people will hear me better when I'm speaking from my own experience rather than trying to tell them what to do or what to think or what to feel or anything like that. Yes, sir. Thank you, John, for your story. Great. Um, question, though. You mentioned that um, you became very conscious of your thoughts and then how you process them and what you did with them. Do you remember why you, you started to do that and then how you kind of started that process made that transition? Fernando's question was, um, how did you uh, make the transition to start analyzing your thoughts? What was it? Is it my setting it pretty well? Yep. Something caused you to start thinking that way. What was it? Why did you start looking at your thoughts and analyzing them? Start allowing God to change those thoughts. Um, the 18 Luke in the White Book uh, talks about it a good bit. Um, and there's a lot of different aspects of that in the 18 Luke. That's a great place for anybody that, that's looking for recovery to start, is, look, is focusing on the 18 Luke. One of the things my, one of my early sponsors did was he said, read through the 18-wheeler and find all the prayers in there. There's a lot of prayers in the 18-wheeler. The 18-wheeler is the overcoming lust and temptation chapter on page 156 of the White Book. Am I done, time marks? Okay, apparently that's all of my time. One more question in the back. Yeah. Yes. Um, this is a pain for me to say, but I have to say this. A couple of weeks ago, I read last in Hawaii. I'm trying to get back up. I feel very broken from this experience, but I believe that God has a reason for it. I think 
That's one of the things. The bullpen is going to have to go back out there. The point is, we want to read each other day. And I told me to read to redo the steps. Step one and three. So I go back to step one, step two. And he wants me to do this. The white book and the big book. The step to action. The step three. I had to do when I get back to New York. When it, I have the white book in the big book, so we do the reach the white book, big book, step into action. Anyway, you start to get to the point where I apologize. Leave the question. I am truly broken right now. On the verge of tears within this experience that I've been going through, and I want to, that's part of why I came to Florida today. It's not, not easy for me to call the delays and everything in the airport. What do I do, sir? About this 18 months. Relapse. And how do we get back on page? Over today, at least well, one day at a time, my thoughts raised. Really one day at a time. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jack. Okay, that was a long question. I can't repeat it all. But really, what it boils down to, what Jay is saying is, uh, I mean, I'm really hurting. How, do, how can I, um, how can things be better? And um, the answer is, it God will let such hurt for our own good and embrace the hurt. Say, God, I want to hurt because it will help me. It will give me the strength and the desire to make changes in how I'm thinking, how I'm, how I'm my attitude really. Attitude is a huge part of getting of, of my recovery. And a lot of times my attitude is helped by the pain that I'm in. I will just look at it the right way. Instead of blaming God or blaming others, I will say, God, I know this is from you. And I know that you mean for this to help me. Turn it into good. Use this pain to help me think differently, to have the right attitude. I give myself to you in the midst of this pain and ask for your healing from this pain through this pain. You have to go through it for it to help. But if you will stick with it, I, God is faithful and he will heal you if you believe in him and trust in him. Thanks for letting me share. Don't a grateful member of the Sinonium. Our next speaker is a role model of healthy recovery for so many. She has served at every position of the group level, as well as serving on the Florida Peer Group. She was the first Florida delegate and served as the Southeast Regional Trustee, aired an international Esmon convention, and organized marathons in her area. But she really is all that and baggage. <laughs> she listened to Kyle's prompting a few years ago and started a well-attended monthly speaker meeting. She has also started groups online that stay in touch on a daily basis to encourage each other. She is a group service sponsor and serves on the literature committee as a reader. She has stated, though, that her favorite, absolute favorite part of service it's sponsoring other people in SNM. I personally know this to be true because she has sponsored me for 
the past almost six years. We have worked through the steps, the traditions, and the concepts together. She has saved my life and my sweet husband's life on so many days <laughs> by picking up the phone, listening to me, encouraging me, and sharing her wisdom with me. Sage sayings such as, do I want them to hear my voice or God's voice? Maybe it's time to take a big or little bite. Shut up. Just <laughs> talking about me. Um, I am not the general manager of the universe. Again, not the It's just a conversation. And my favorite, I'm not co-signing anyone's BS today. <laughs> when you she will lovingly kick my backside. And I thank her for it. She has taught me and many others the importance of service in the fellowship. This amazing woman has encouraged me to try different service positions within the fellowship and within my home group. She was my service sponsor when I fearfully started a new online meeting. She has shown me the importance of sponsoring others, picking up the phone daily, and rigorously working my program. Most importantly, she has helped me seek God whole new way. My relationship with my humble power has become the most important one in my life. I'm a completely different person today because of her. And I'm so grateful. There are so many who have been impacted by her service. She is generous with her time as she picks up the phone one more time, one day at a time, to share her experience, strength, and hope yet one more person impacted by addiction. The ripple effect has been huge as each of us who have been touched by her go out and touch others. Anne S., thank you for your service and sharing your story this evening. I love you and I'm so thankful for you. That's Tiara. Thank you for asking me to share my recovery journey. I came into this program from another Anon program. I was an unknowing participant. I was hurt, angry, and upset. My first meeting was Mother's Day, May 2000. With an elephant in the living room, and it was time for me to face it, make friends with it, dress it up, maybe even learn to love it. I've learned through the years that I can't tell the good news from the bad. What I thought was the worst thing ever, I mean, Desimon, turned into the greatest blessing of my life. I quickly got a temporary sponsor who had a sponsor. That matters. My home group is still Sunday Serenity, Daytona 630. I began to work the steps. The steps saved my life. The traditions saved my relationships. And the concepts taught me to go out into the world. The only thing I can change is myself, and that changed everything. These spiritual principles helped me to grow up. They're based on principles that work every time. My first sponsor made many suggestions. I asked, what are all these suggestions? What does that mean? She was so sweet. She smiled. She said, a suggestion just means... Do it or die. 
I had a decision. Recovery or death. My self-protection of emotional isolation nearly killed me. As a child, I was taught, don't trust, don't feel, don't talk. It was not enough, and I was too much. I wanted to be a girly girl. I wanted to be a princess. I wanted the once upon a time, and she lived happily ever after, as my Prince Charming would swoop in, and my life would be perfect. The reality was that I was a hurt little girl who had no tools for a healthy relationship. The message from my childhood played over and over in my head. And I carried those messages of the hurt little girl well into my adult years. If you're frightened and unwanted or unseen, your brain's protection specializes in managing feelings of fear and abandonment. And that's where I was stuck. I was so paralyzed by emotion and especially those historical years. I didn't start to really grow up until recovery, which taught me to look at things in a different way. I soon began to see how much I needed healthy connection. I needed a sounding board. I needed to learn to take better care of me. I learned that freedom is not just something we want to have, but something we must give others. Taking my hands off those who were addicted in my life was so very difficult. We all have baggage. This is the hospital planet. If we weren't sick, God would not have sent us all here. One of my favorite analogies is of the marriage bed. Marriage bed is made up of all of my hurt, my pain, wreckage of my past. The old dirty diapers, laundry, old tools, lots and lots of things I cling to. That old baggage that I thought would keep me safe. Generational patterns and certainly the secrets that I thought kept me safe. Then Prince Charming arrives. And he too has baggage, dirty diapers, sneaky laundry, things that didn't work, don't fit. Those old tools, his hurt, his pain, childhood abuse and secrets. And then we expect intimacy and sex to be easy in that marriage bed. I'm not sure where the lie began that marriage is easy. And of course, once you find your soulmate, it's going to be great. I think the only reason any of us are still married is because we both didn't want to get divorced on the same day. <laughs> we had a traveling pastor one day who said, I'll just tell you this about marriage. The first 50 years are the hardest. <laughs> With all the dysfunction, addiction, and secrets in my marriage, I just held on. I waited years. Others wait decades. Some never recover. I don't have a qualifier. Qualifier is not a recovery term. I qualify because I show up and I claim my seat. I learned to stop judging and labeling others. Qualifier seems so condescending, maybe punishing as I judge myself superior to someone else. That's where calling them our sweet husbands came from, because that is not what I wanted to call him. When I say sweet husband, it reminds me of who he really is, not a disease or a problem to be solved. In the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, fourth edition, it says on page 417, if you live in the problem, the problem gets bigger. But if I live in the solution, the problem goes away. I surrendered my hypocrisy. I surrendered being so judgmental. I learned live and let live. Time takes time. I hated that in early recovery. Things I almost earned. I wanted the fast track. I wanted to fix a lifetime of dysfunction in just a few weeks. 
This program helped me find me. I love learning. I'm an academic. I love words. I learned many new words and acronyms. I looked up the definition of autonomous. It means acting according to a moral compass rather than letting feelings dictate. I let my feelings dictate for years. Went to the hardware store looking for bread more times than I care to admit. I learned that feelings are like children. They don't let them drive the car, but you don't stick them in the trunk either. In recovery, I was told I was enough. <laughs> I was not too much and that I did make a difference. Thanks for showing up. Thanks for serving. Thanks for making a mistake and being human. I learned in recovery to celebrate my humanness. Today, if I make a brand new mistake, one I have never made before, I am throwing a party. If he's stealing. So very human. I learned in the traditions that we share our experience, strength, and hope. Share. We share as equals. We learn from each other. Learned I can't fix anyone. Yet to meet anybody in recovery, I grew up thinking I can't wait to mess up my life to such an extent that I can try a 12 step. <laughs> we come here because nothing else works. <laughs> so, what is addiction? The best description I've seen is this addiction manifests in any behavior. A person finds temporary pleasure or relief in, and therefore craves, suffers negative consequences from, and has trouble giving it. It's a behavior I use to solve a problem, to avoid my feelings, or to escape my pain. Any behavior. I think everyone is addicted to someone or something. I no longer ask why the addiction, I ask why the pain. And that helps me to be more loving and compassionate to myself and to others. I've learned in recovery that it really does go back to childhood. Abuse, neglect, trauma, dysfunction, lack of attachment. And so did the triggers. I was a hurt little girl so desperately wanting attention and affection and affirmation. I'm no longer that hurt little girl. I learned probably four most important words in recovery. Please call me back. Taking care of me. Don't text much. That's not a healthy form of communication. I don't need you to text me and go, is it okay currently text you? <laughs> That's taking care of me. And if you're making a phone call, you take care of you. We learned it's just a conversation, and I found my voice. But I did, did need to learn to take little bites of shut up and big bites of shut up. Because we have lots of words, words, words. You know that women have over three or over thirty thousand words a day. Men about ten thousand. I think that's probably why more arguments occur in the evening. <laughs> women are not out of words. <laughs> and you know, I've learned to say, "Honey, would you please think about this before you say no." Because men tend to say no. Women tend to say yes. Now, one of the biggest issues I have is he never remembers. And I never <laughs> But I have learned to live in the grace of today. Some days I still walk around on eggshells, but I do have a choice to wear my pretty shoes and my tiara and dance around in the kitchen. 
I learned that sex does begin in the kitchen because love is an all-day affair. Love is an action. Love is hard work. It's about connection. I learned the difference between love and lust. Lust takes, love gives. Yep, pretty simple. And yet profound. In recovery, my sponsor told me that sex stood for sacred energy exchange. She asked if I prayed about it. Uh, that was a major revelation. No, I had never prayed about it. And so it began. It's a sacred gift to self-giving love that is shared. Connect with me and make me whole, we cry in outstretched arms. That's the beginning of the essay white book. I think it should be the ending as well, because I've learned that the opposite of addiction is connection. When I first came into this fellowship in 2000, we called it acting in or acting out. Now we know it has a different name, sexual anorexia, or more accurately, intimacy anorexia. The father of my children, we lived like roommates. He was locked in his shop in his trauma and emotions. He had little time for me, and of course, always blamed for the problems in the marriage. He withdrew and withheld love, praise, and sex. We initially connected because of our spirituality that once married, he could not or would not connect. I wonder sometimes why the intense chase and then once he caught me and we were married, he gave up pursuing me. That was so very painful. He was unable to share feelings and seemed emotionally vacant. Anger became an issue, or even worse, silence, withdrawing and withholding. I came to Essanon in 2000 because of the acting out. I stayed because of the intimacy anorexia. We separated and then divorced in 2006. It was my second failed marriage. Lessons I didn't learn with husband one got magnified with husband number two. The lessons I didn't learn with husband number two had magnified in a serious relationship I had in 2010. I was learning to turn towards them. I know that the opposite of addiction is connection. I learned it was just a conversation. I learned more about sexual addiction and the family disease than I ever thought possible. Through recovery, I found my voice and I learned the value of worry. I so desperately wanted God to fix me. God's plan was for healing a slow, painful, joy-filled healing. I really was a sacred to my secrets. Anything I am unable or afraid to consider or face has power over me and drives my behavior in secret and destructive ways. I'm no longer in survival mode as a hurt little girl in an overwhelming family situation. Those tools served a legitimate purpose at the time, but became a powerful trap. Stuff saved my life, but the traditions taught me about healthy relationships. So once again, I began unpacking all of the wreckage that was heaped on the marriage bed. Learned to face each day, and yes, it's just a conversation. And we are all wounded in relationships, so the only place to heal is in relationship. So I really did call my sponsor every day. I was a high maintenance sponsor. <laughs> I learned that many painful and difficult conversations with those I loved. I learned pizza. Quit taking it personal. What a relief. I took everything personal. Relationships and recovery helped me heal. Having a sponsor, being a sponsor, my homework, and especially service from the group level all the way to school service in every position in between. 
I place the dysfunctional family rules with spiritual principles. I replace the dysfunctional family rules with spiritual principles. A principle is a rule that works every time. It's amazing looking back to see how much healthier my family got when I used the tools I learned in replacing. It's difficult to look at historical emotions or triggers. I learned that they really are a sign that God is trying to heal something in me. What I'm upset about is not what I'm upset about. It's not about the spilled milk. I expect others to take care of me, to provide for me, to keep me safe. That's fantasy. It's my job to deal with my feelings and emotions. It's not he's triggering me. It's I'm triggered because there's something deep within, almost always childhood issues, that I'm now willing to take a look at so God can heal. The trigger is just that little itty-bitty mechanism. And, and what I'm carrying inside is what blows up. I used to play Battle of the Victims, and I realized once again I was going to the hardware store looking for bread. With all the healing in my recovery, I'm no longer a victim. In early recovery, let my feelings dominate. Now I look at my feet literally and figuratively, and ask myself, where am I today? Feelings are not facts. I don't have to hide them or discount them. I no longer let them make the decisions. I look at the facts. I'm blessed. I'm grateful. I'm a princess. I was made for a royal purpose. For such a time as this. So I prayed for many years to find a husband. I wanted to find the husband. I realized I would never find the right person. I had to be the right person. And I had to surrender every aspect of my life. I lived my life and I raised my two sons. And I worked and I lived my program. I know that adversity teaches me lessons. Prosperity never will. The desire of my heart was always to be married. And in 2016, God opened the door for the next chapter of my life. I met him a few years before. It was not what I ordered on the God's will and way list. <laughs> but he is kind, he is brilliant, and he is such a hard worker, and he is in recovery. My dad was sick and needed a handyman. My friend said, hey, call him. So I did. He showed up for my mom and helped in some ways. He's so much like my father. One of the two of them to meet, my dad had left the hospital and went to a rehab near his beloved golf course, July 22nd, 2016. I went to see my dad. Never before had ever said this. I said to him that day, you know, dad, someday I'm going to meet a man and you're going to know it and I'm going to know it. And he said, great. He trusted the nudge that day and he went to meet my dad. He was having issues with the sprinkler system and wanted to ask questions. And of course, he wanted to meet my dad. He, too, is an avid golfer. My dad didn't want to talk about the sprinklers. He said, there's a book. Read it. <laughs> my dad just wanted to know about him. Hey, where do you like to golf? And golf ball is your favorite. If my butter, you can have it. Very important life issues, for that, at least for these two. He was there and with my dad for about 15 minutes. And my dad, COVID had died. When I arrived there at the reading, he was standing out front holding that very first parking space. Looking back, it was just what my dad would have done. So I'd known on my dad. 
He died 32 years sober. He did not have recovery. He never went to a meeting, and yet he was a kind and gentle soul who found his own path. Recovery in these rooms are not for everyone. They're not for those that want it. They're not for those that need it. Recovery is for those of us who work in it. My life depended on it. I had got the gift of desperation. So after my dad died, I stopped to see my mom. And he was there. He and my mom became very dear friends and continued to pray. And I asked again, God, really? Yeah. <laughs> Even my mom said, oh my God, what are you waiting for? It's just like your father. <laughs> I reminded that I had been praying for years for a husband. He told me he didn't want a girlfriend, and he certainly did not want a wife. He wanted his fortune and his recovery. And then he said, You know, I really like you, but I like your mom better. <laughs> we began to pray. We became clear that we really were being called to marriage, we were better together. We still are. His strengths are my weaknesses. His weaknesses are my strengths. The last thing my dad needed before passing away was to meet my future husband. He and my mom were in cahoots and surprised me on our wedding day as he fit into and wore my dad's tuxedo. So with my years of recovery and his, I thought, oh, piece of cake, this is going to be amazing. We waited and first kiss was at the altar. I thought for sure it would be easy. We were both these little birds with broken wings, so of course I was certain that together we would fly. <laughs> I found that marriage really is God's way to heal the parts in us that were not healed in our singleness. And of course, we are all wounded in relationships, so that's the only place that God heals. And of course, after we were married, I began to work. It was so painful. Both of us thought we continued the independent stubborn ways that work when we were single. I promised myself I would never again be controlled by that. But there I was in that marriage bed with so much baggage. This and mom. We both thought we could ignore the baggage and live happy ever after. Yeah, not so much. The pain of rejection felt so very personal. My higher power was using my old triggers to begin a new level of healing. Many years ago, I trusted the nudge to put my name on a long-distance sponsor list. I hadn't received a call until a few weeks after our wedding, and of course, my higher power knew exactly what I needed. The phone began to ring. Strong women who had been married for years and who were in need of a sponsor. I really needed them so much more than they needed me. But isn't that always how God works? They wanted recovery, and I needed to focus on myself. Being a sponsor is miracle growth. Having a sponsor and having sponsees is the foundation of recovery. Yes, we are hurt in relationships, so that is the only place for us to heal. began with calling my sponsor every day, and having a sponsor who has a sponsor is important. And yes, it's okay to ask your sponsor, who is your sponsor? We are a family, and it is just a conversation. The sponsor-sponsee relationship is just that relationship. It's where I first learned connection. She was loving and kind and so very patient with me. When I asked her to call me back, she did. It's two hurt people healing. I don't dominate or control. I don't give advice. 
I suggest I talk, but I also listen. I care. I love my girls. They are also very special. I do have a BS meter, and I do know how to use it. Living with an addict takes patience, and for me, a lot of kindness and humor. Have you ever tried to hug an organ? Uh, not easy, but I was determined. I began to do ask for holy, uh, ask for redos. Some of my girls call them holy redos to change my mindset and settle my emotions. It's easier to sunset the situation quickly and get it out of my head. Many of my head is still there, ready and willing to take charge. At first, when I asked for a holy redo, he said, absolutely not. There were many words, 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 and I realized he couldn't hear me. So desperately wanted him to hear God through me, but that's not how it works. When I hear God, it's for me, not for someone else. I see, I could see his pain and I could see mine. Through recovery, I decided I was going to kill him. <laughs> With kindness. I wrote love notes, made coffee, put hearts. Poor man cannot even put on his shoes without looking to see what's in them. <laughs> <laughs> Notes to sell Cadbury eggs and golf clubs in the summer, not a good idea. <laughs> he didn't have a childhood, he never learned to play, he had never even been to Disney. So I decided to love him with all my recovery tools. I've learned that if you feel safe and loved, your brain becomes specialized in exploration, play, and cooperation. If you're frightened and unwanted, it specializes in managing feelings of fear and abandonment. Because of recovery, I feel safe and loved, and my brain really does respond differently. There are many in this room and in the rooms that I have personally witnessed making this healing transformation. Don't leave five minutes before the miracle happens. And just for the record, you are a miracle. Tomorrow we celebrate six years married. <laughs> I've really learned to trust the process. It wasn't going to leave five minutes before the miracle happened. I have learned three-sentence rule. I can say anything I need to in three sentences or less. Pretty profound for an on. Recently, well, uh, recently had a loved one face some legal issues, and I said, I love you. You are not your mistake. Find your people. Still struggle with let go and be dragged. I know how to take little bites to shut up and big bites to shut up. I don't let the feelings drive the car. We have healthy conversations. Painful, difficult, but healthy. I try to think of it as a meeting, no crosswalk, no outside issues, just listen and let him share his hurt and pain. He wasn't asking me to fix him. He was sharing his pain. So maybe I can help him carry it and eventually let it go. That is intimacy. Into me. See, I remind myself as often as necessary that it's not me versus him. It's me and my sweet husband against the world. I can't fix him. And I remind myself I'm the mom of two, not the mom of three. My grown sons are on their own path and have their own higher power. I'm reminded that God does not have grandkids. I've had many sponsors and sponsees come and go or carry the message to the best of my ability. I can't, give, I can't keep what I don't give away. 
I've received a free gift, so I freely give. I can still get caught up in my head. I know I can't fix what's in my head with what's in my head. I need help. I need a sponsor. I need meetings. I need outside professions. I ask for help. I know what I'm good at. I know what I'm not so good at. I don't have to be everything to everyone. Nobody can. Living in gratitude is the answer. I still can't tell the good news from the bad. It really is just a conversation. So, once upon a time, there was a princess. And because of recovery, and you, my beautiful family, I am able to say, I am enough. I am not too much. And I do make a difference. And when I grow up, I want to be me. Thanks for letting me share. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.